1: Before I get started, I have a message. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate, and for a limited time only, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments. For the past quarter century, Slate podcasts have been covering all the major news events— from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. And it's the only network that has a narrative philosophy show on its roster, us. If we've become a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate+. Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hi-fi plus. That's H-I-P-H-I plus. Again, we're giving you $25 off an annual membership through October 31st. So sign up now at slate.com slash hi-fi plus. from Slate. If you ask David Lewis's friends about his creative process, how he actually developed his views and put them down in print, they all tell a similar story.
2: He didn't drive and he was in Australia.
1: Frank Jackson, Australia National University.
2: So often I would pick him up to lunch the airport. Back in those days, the drive took nearly an hour.
1: Alan Hayek, also Australia National University.
2: In other words, it was roughly the, the length of time it took to give a paper. I'd be driving, focusing on the traffic, and David might say... Let me try something out on you. Maybe it'll pause. And then he began... We know a lot. I know what food penguins eat. I know that phones used to ring, but nowadays squeal when someone calls up. And away he went. A whole series of paragraphs would emerge from his mouth, which would be the next major publication. And it just came out like that. Basically gave a very early version of elusive knowledge.
1: He recites the entire essay. Pretty well, yes.
2: (laughs) It was like he was taking dictation from God, you know. It just came out perfectly formed. First time, roughly when we arrived at Melbourne University, he came to the end of the paper and I said, that sounds good to me, David, I think you better publish that. But a similar thing happened in our house. There was a conference coming up. He was having our place for dinner. He hadn't written the paper. So I hopped over in the corner, in the edge of the dining room, lots of noise going on, the children around, you know. My wife and I were cooking and he had that very distinctive black pen he used to write with. He sat down, wrote the whole paper out, and the whole paper was in the mind or in the brain beforehand, just a matter of getting it down on
1: paper.
3: They say that experience is the best teacher.
1: Here he is, dictating a paper from his mind in 1981.
3: If you have a new experience smell the skunk or taste the Vegemite, you come to know what it's like, whatever that means. But that isn't the only thing that happens. You also gain abilities. You can recognize the experience if you have it again. You can remember having it. You can imagine having it. And you can also imagine having related experiences that you never did have. Tasting Vegemite ice cream, for instance.
1: On our third episode of The Man of Many Worlds, we're featuring David Lewis's most famous view. That our universe is just one among an infinite number of other possible universes. He called the view modal realism. And with the help of a few Australian and one American colleague, it had the effect of reviving questions in philosophy Long thought to be unanswerable. The year was 1968. He was starting out as a professor at UCLA. Two things happened that year that would set his trajectory for the remainder of his career. One friendship and one rivalry formed. Together they would turn David Lewis into the man of many worlds. David Lewis's dissertation advisor at Harvard was Willard Van Orman Quine. Quine made his name as the most prominent American philosopher in the mid-20th century, arguing against things more than arguing for them. Quine's version of pragmatism, along with his empiricist roots, took the form of an attack on the ability of philosophy to make sense of human judgments about what is possible and impossible. For Quine, the world was full of what is true and false, and of things we see or hear or postulate to explain the true and false. What's possible and impossible, thought Quine, wasn't something objectively true out there in this universe, or in any other. Sometimes Quine wrote as though possibilities were just defective notions, worth abandoning in any serious thinking. At best, he would say that they were features of someone's psychology. If someone thought time travel was impossible, Quine thought what this told you was that you were in the presence of a hard-headed person. Someone who isn't ever going to accept that there's time travel, no matter the evidence they came across. Someone who thought time travel was possible was open-minded about it. Whether time travel was possible or impossible was not a question you could answer by inspecting or thinking of facts about the universe. They were psychological facts about how open or dogmatic a person was about their beliefs. Psychologizing philosophy was something central to Quine, and the American pragmatist tradition he was a part of. It would be a picture David Lewis would eventually overturn. Hello, I'm John Bigelow. I'm an emeritus
3: professor at Monash University, and I knew David Lewis, knew him well. I myself have worked in metaphysics primarily,
1: more or less the same areas that David Lewis worked in, John Bigelow traces the skepticism about metaphysics in Western analytic philosophy back to the Enlightenment, notably David Hume and Immanuel Kant, two figures that continue to shape philosophy in the West. Their skepticism came from very different places. Kant argued
3: that we can't decide the big issues we care about. The big issues are God, freedom, and immortality. And none of these can be decided by reason. So therefore, we should take a leap of faith because we can't prove it either to be true or false. Trying to put a full stop to arguing rationally about the big metaphysical issues that we care about. From Kant right through under logical positivism, all the metaphysical
1: questions were supposed to be nonsense. The positivists were the Vienna Circle logical positivists, heavily influenced by and impressed with David Hume's empiricism and the burdening sciences of the early twentieth century, Albert Einstein's general relativity, thermodynamics, and quantum mechanics. Science is so successful that comparatively, philosophical questions look to them more like bullshit. Was a death of metaphysics. So we were
3: supposed to stop thinking about metaphysical questions and either do sensible empirical science or be an artist or something like that. Into
1: that history comes Quine, who, amongst other things, saw possibilities as another one of these metaphysical concepts like the self or free will. Quine was still
3: part of that wake of positivism, uh, David Lewis had a respect for common sense that made him think that modality's got to
1: be okay. Common sense judgments like, you could have gone to the store, but instead you stayed home and that's why I'm mad at you. Modalities are claims about what you could have done and what things would have been like if you did them. We make them all the time. Respecting common sense for David Lewis meant respecting everyday talk and thinking as reasonable, sometimes true, and not to be deemed defective because there's no science of the possible yet.
3: Whereas Quine was willing to think of ordinary common sense beliefs as second-grade discourse. You can talk that way just in the supermarket, but... um, Uh, If you really want to limb reality, you just basically talk pure mathematics and high-level physics is all you need. Whereas David thought that that just can't be right. In order to be a, a conscious agent at all, you have to sometimes survey the things you could do. That's a modal claim, possibilities. And what the likely consequences would be of each of those things that you could do. And in the end, you only do one of them. So a lot of that reasoning was
1: concerning things which are non-actual. It's counterfactual reasoning. It works when you think about the past or future. If you had gone to the store, we wouldn't be out of milk now. If you go to the store now, maybe we can salvage this relationship. But if you don't, I've had it with you. All of these are counterfactual hypotheticals about the world of possibilities. Something Quine, Kant, Hume, the entire tradition of philosophy they were in, had rejected as being too weirdly metaphysical for rational discourse. It's got to be sensible to be able
3: to argue about possibilities. Quine doesn't let you do that. Quine says you should just describe the world the way it is. How could we be conscious agents that make decisions and weigh up the possibilities and the probabilities if
4: that's all there was? I first heard of him from Peter Unger, who also went to Swarthmore.
1: Philosopher Saul Kripke is credited, along with David Lewis, as the two figures who revived metaphysics in the second half of the 20th century. Through their work on language and its relationship to the concept of a possible world. They were colleagues for many years at Princeton, but their intellectual lives crossed quite a bit even before that.
4: You were asking me when I first got to know him. This was when I was in the Society of Fellows at Harvard, and he was writing his Ph.D. thesis on convention, under Quine. Quine also
1: taught Kripke, who went to Harvard after that 1958 National Science Talent Search we talked about in the last episode, the same talent search where most of David Lewis's college friends met. As precocious as was David Lewis, Saul Kripke bypassed graduate school altogether, went straight to teaching in PhD programs, before he even graduated college. When the two crossed paths at Harvard, they were working on completely non-overlapping projects. David Lewis on the conventions of language, Saul Kripke on foundational issues in mathematics. But the historical record shows that both were thinking and developing views, behind the scenes, unbeknownst to everyone else about possibilities and possible worlds that would become their most well-known views. You kind of both emerged thinking about possible worlds and counterfactuals at the same time, but largely independently, correct? And then you end up being at the same department. I think he
4: knew about my modal semantics, which was very early, right? I managed to publish one of the papers before I got to college.
1: There was a breakthrough idea that Kripke published before he got to college. An idea he kept working on despite repeated attempts to redirect him at Harvard. It's about what possibilities are. It's possible for Trump to have won the 2020 U.S. election, even though he didn't. Means that there is a possible world where he won that election. The fact that he won that election in 2020, in that possible world, is what makes true in this world that it's a possibility here. There's no possible world in which a pink raccoon won the U.S. 2020 election. That fact about a group of other possible worlds makes it true in our world that it's impossible for a pink raccoon to have won the election. Kripke was able to give a description and then prove using logic that there was a complete and consistent way to translate all talk about possibilities and impossibilities into what happens at other possible worlds and how what happens at other possible worlds makes true possibilities, and impossibilities in this world. What are possible worlds, in your view? They
4: are abstract entities.
1: Kripke, and probably everyone other than David Lewis, thinks of possible worlds as a kind of device, an abstraction, a story, a fiction. There's something you can think about, write about, and even give a moderately complete description of, but they're nothing more than that. They're descriptions, they're objects of thinking, maybe even fan fiction about the actual world. But the actual world is special. It's the only one that exists, the only one with actual planets, people, laws, and flora and fauna in it.
5: And Lewis could see already there.
1: Anthony Fisher, University of Washington, and David Lewis Scholar.
5: That there was a lot of explanatory power that you can get from possible worlds, but these philosophers, Carnap and Kripke, weren't taking possible worlds seriously the way that Lewis thought that we should take them. We should take them, as he says in some letters, as they are, as a world which is a big container, very much like our universe. Lewis, in a way, is saying that possible worlds are no different in kind to our world. So this then points us in the direction that possible worlds are concrete, because our world is concrete.
1: And these other concrete worlds are different from ours only in being inaccessible by space and time travel. No matter how far you go in any direction in space, No matter how far forward or backward in time you go, you will stay within your own possible world. That's the definition of your world, a universe bounded by space and time and the events in it. Possible worlds are disconnected concrete space-and-time universes with their own people, planets, laws... And
4: facts. Of course, David's view was that there was no notion of actual world except the world I happen to be in, right?
1: For David Lewis, there's nothing special about our world. Every world is actual to the people and aliens that live there. Actual is just the way people talk about their own possible world. David Lewis was convinced that this was the best way to think about possible worlds.
4: One thing he had a certain amount of success with, for a moment, even with me as I remember it, is that this is the real intuitive or natural view of worlds, right?
1: But you didn't stay convinced?
4: No, of course it wasn't. What did Leibniz mean by saying... God created the best of all possible worlds. If there were all these disjoint space times there, what would God do to make one actual? Give it a guess? It was 1968.
1: David Lewis published a paper called Counterpart Theory and Quantified Modal Logic. His first paper, That took seriously the metaphysical implications of the reality of alternate possible worlds. Kripke immediately wrote Lewis a letter containing eight objections to Lewis's view. On the view that Kripke likes, going back to Leibniz, God only thinks about the other possible worlds. He could create a world in which I don't exist or one where I teach at Swarthmore rather than Vassar. Those possible worlds are objects in the mind of God. Only in the act of creation does God make one of those worlds concrete and actual. But for David Lewis, all of those possible worlds exist concretely and must do so for there to be any possibilities at all. Counterpart theory was Lewis's attempt to defend one metaphysical implication of his view. I'm here teaching at Vassar College. I could have been teaching at Swarthmore. In fact, I came close to accepting a job there many years ago. That means for Kripke... That there's a story you can tell, a film that you can make, a thought that you can have, involving me teaching at Swarthmore. But for Lewis, it means there is a world, a concrete alternative universe, in which I am teaching at Swarthmore. But given that I teach at Vassar, I'm not also somewhere else teaching at Swarthmore. That's a contradiction. David Lewis's solution is that I do not inhabit another world, a world in which I teach at Swarthmore. Instead, that world has a counterpart of me. It also has a counterpart of Swarthmore, and of Vassar, and of everything else in this world. Other possible worlds are made of counterparts of our world and counterparts of other worlds. And these counterparts are what make true what's possible for me in this world. That view, that my possibilities are determined by what happens to counterparts of me, that concrete people living out their own lives, minding their own business in their worlds, determine what is possible for me, that's the view that just wasn't acceptable for Saul Kripke.
4: This idea of counterpart theory and disjoint possible worlds, all this seemed to me to be so counterintuitive that I never was gripped by it. It
1: was metaphysical theorizing that went off the rails. Once David got into
4: something, he uh, would not let go of it.
1: But David Lewis had his reasons as counterintuitive as modal realism and counterpart theory were, he thought the alternatives were even worse. Consider this puzzle. I don't have an identical twin brother. But I could have. Zygotic splitting is not an outlandish possibility. On everyone's view, that means there is a possible world in which I have an identical twin brother. In fact, there are a lot of these worlds, infinitely many. But which of the identical twins in any of these worlds is me? This is called the problem of trans-world identity. What if one of the brothers went on to teach at Vassar, But another went on to teach at Swarthmore. But that's the guy who ended up producing a Slate podcast, Hi-Fi Nation. Am I the Vassar professor twin without the podcast, or the Swarthmore professor with the podcast? Counterpart theory does a much better job of answering this question. Neither is you because you don't exist in other possible worlds. There are two twin brothers. One is similar to you in some ways, the other is similar to you in others. They're both counterparts of you in different ways. There's no fact in other possible worlds about which thing there is really you. The alternative view Where possible worlds are, just the story. Which twin brother is really me is whichever one I decide is me. But that's counterintuitive too. If identity is just a matter of decision, then why can't twins in real life just decide to be the other one? I don't mean just call themselves by the other name. I mean, decide that they will literally be the other sibling. In fact, actual identical twins make David Lewis's case even better. I see twins every day at the bus stop. Let's call them A and B. Like all identical twins, A and B are split from an original zygote. It's a real nearby possibility that their zygote never split. That's an even closer possibility than my zygote splitting into two. But in the possible world where it never split and it develops into only one person, is that person A or is that person B? There's no answer. You can't just decide that it's A, which makes B non-existent in that world. And you can't decide that it's B and do the same to A. Counterpart theory says that there's no answer, and no decision will give you an answer. This person is a counterpart of A and a counterpart of B, and not the same as either of them. David Lewis thinks there's no identity of people across different possible worlds. There's only similarities between us and people in other worlds. The more similar, the more we're counterparts.
5: When Lewis argues for modal realism, he doesn't say, I know with certainty that this view must be true. It's not like that at all. The claim is, this theory might be true. And this theory is most likely to be true when we compare it to the other theories that are on the table.
1: Anthony Fisher is talking about the distinctive way that David Lewis argued for his metaphysical views. It was quite a departure from how philosophers historically did so. When someone complained that it was wildly counterintuitive to think that there are many other worlds just like ours he'd listen to them and then issue a mark against his theory, minus one. But then he would raise a puzzle for his competitors and make a mark for his theory, plus one, and a minus one for his competitors. Quine doesn't think anything is possible or impossible, minus one for him. Counterpart theory solves the problem of trans-world identity. Plus one for Lewis. No argument was decisive. No picture captured everything. All you had was competing pictures with their pluses and their minuses. And once all the pictures were on the table, the best view, the one with the most pluses and fewest minuses, is the one we should believe. So I spoke to somebody very close to Lewis, but I won't name who it was, who, as much as this person really admired Lewis and his views, actually detested the appearance of cost-benefit philosophy. Claiming something was a plus for a theory and a minus, and you add up the pluses and you take off the minuses, and then that's how you argue for something. Actually, that played a big role in philosophy. People suddenly... Argued in that way, Lewis sort of gave license to people to argue in that way. Do you have an opinion about that argumentative strategy—the the exhibiting of a theory and claiming it's got more pluses than minuses and so forth?
5: Yes, I think it is a good approach to metaphysical theorizing, and that's because I think it's a good approach to philosophical theorizing in general, and it's also a good approach to theorizing anyway like for all uh, domains when we look at what scientists are doing i think that they're also engaging in this cost benefit analysis i think it's got a humbling effect because you are realizing that no theory is perfect you are identifying costs not just in your opponent's theory but in your theory and you can also be charitable to your opponent because you can look at the benefits of their theory as well as sort of bigging up your own theory. We may in the end arrive at a table of you know adding up the pluses of the minus and so on where we get all the theories have a negative number and then the question is which theory has the negative number closest to zero. That, I think, represents the humility in his theorizing, too. We are going to find lots of costs. There's no theory is going to be uh, trouble-free. And we should never say things like, my theory is the only theory that can explain this phenomena, and therefore it must be true. Lewis did not think like that. He did not argue like that. He thought that his theory was the best compared to others. But sure enough, some other theory down the road might be trouble-free, have the benefits of his theory, but not the cost. So he was open to that. So I think that the cost-benefit analysis, that way of theorizing, is also very productive for intellectual activity and for philosophical progress.
1: It was always David Lewis's goal to make philosophical progress, to piece together the most complete picture of the universe where everything fit together. He thought he found that picture in modal realism. He thought other pieces fell into place once you accept it. And when we come back, we look at those other pieces of the puzzle. Hi-Fi Nation will return after these messages.
6: I'm Helen Beebe. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Manchester in England.
1: Helen Beebe was a co-director of the David Lewis Project at Manchester, which went through all of David Lewis's correspondences. Lewis was perhaps one of the last 20th century figures to have primarily corresponded through hand-typed letters sent through snail mail. The archive is the most accurate guide to the chronology of David Lewis's philosophical thinking. His views about possible worlds developed out of problems that he wanted to address as far back as 1958. They were ideas he would eventually publish.
6: He wrote one of the most important papers on causation in the 20th century, uh, which is his 1973 paper, which is called Causation.
1: It was the concept of causation that pushed David Lewis to try and piece together a comprehensive picture of the universe. Causation had become a beguiling concept ever since philosopher David Hume convinced everyone in the 1700s that we never actually see it. The only thing we ever see, the only thing we ever sense, is a correlation two things happening one after another. Hume concluded from this, empiricist that he was, that whether one thing caused another, a virus causing a disease, was a projection of our mind, something we convinced ourselves of with enough experience of correlation. That should be enough if you're David Hume. Some things are projections of the human mind. Useful for us to believe, and things we can't help but believe. But whether there was any underlying reality to causes was not something for us to ever know. But ever the early metaphysician, David Lewis wanted to know what causation really was. What underlying reality makes one thing cause another? It's something he thought he figured out as early as freshman year in college.
4: My second paper
3: in my first philosophy course defended the counterfactual analysis of causation. I've been at it off and on ever since.
1: David Lewis from 1999. The counterfactual analysis of causation is that A causes B means that if A hadn't happened, neither would B. And... If A were to happen, so would B.
6: Now, like, that just might not sound like rocket science, but it's completely been the dominant view since, I think, not that long after Lewis wrote that paper.
1: Smoking causes cancer means the same thing, that if the smoking never happened, neither does the cancer. And if the smoking had happened, you would find cancer. Hume himself flirted with the counterfactual analysis of causation, enough to state it, but not enough to defend it. Hume liked the idea because he didn't like the alternative, which was that causes are secret powers in nature, hidden to human perception. Viruses cause disease on the secret powers view would mean that viruses have a power within them that necessitates the disease makes the disease impossible to avoid given the right conditions. Hume rejected that human beings could ever perceive or sense in the world necessities and impossibilities. And good empiricist that he was, we can't ever know the existence of things beyond our ability to sense them. The counterfactual theory of causation doesn't identify causation with secret powers. But Hume, and later empiricists, including Quine, probably recognize that you run into another problem. Where in the world do you look to sense what would have happened to a smoker if he never smoked? You can't perceive something that hasn't happened. Counterfactual hypotheticals are exactly that. Statements about things that haven't happened. He first had the idea for counterfactual
6: analysis of causation when he was 16 or 17. He kind of had some views about how counterfactuals might work in that paper, but he didn't have it all straight. Like, that's a big job, trying to figure out how counterfactuals work. And that was a thing that nobody really knew how to do in the late 1950s. He figured out a theory of counterfactuals in the late 1960s, and I think, like, once he got that piece of the puzzle in place, it's like, right, now I can sort out causation because that is my theory of causation.
1: David Lewis's modal realism came with a theory of counterfactual hypotheticals. Statements like, thousands more people would have died if there weren't any lockdowns. On David Lewis's view, this statement means that in every possible world, a lot like this one, where there were no COVID lockdowns, thousands more people would have died. What makes a counterfactual true is what the concrete facts are in the concrete worlds that are very similar to our world. If you want to figure that out, you do what you do to try to figure out any concrete fact about a concrete world that you don't know yet. What would happen if you grabbed a cast iron skillet with your bare hands after it's been in a 400 degree oven for an hour? You never actually grab it, but you know through simulation, through past experience, through assumptions you make, just what the world would be like if you did do it. Since causation is just the counterfactual, causes were not about secret hidden powers in our world, they too were about concrete facts in other concrete worlds. David Lewis liked the way all of his views connected. They hanged together in a comprehensive way. The reality of possible worlds meant the reality of true counterfactuals, which meant the reality of causation. And there was a lot more.
5: One of the major concerns for Lewis was to explain the distinction between essential properties, or accidental properties.
1: What do you think is essential to you? And what do you think you could lose and still be you? When I was a kid, I once refused to acknowledge my father because he shaved his mustache off, not realizing that facial hair is an accidental property. But when my mom lost all of her memories and then her consciousness recently, I started to let go, well before the death of her body. It was because I recognized that those things may have been essential properties.
5: So for Lewis, for us to have that essential property, all of our counterparts must also have that property as well. And accidental properties are properties that only some of my counterparts share and other counterparts don't
1: the list of things that David Lewis could explain using concrete possible worlds started to multiply, mounting up pluses for his theory, convincing him that it was true. All of this came together for him, according to his letters, in 1968, leaving him enough of a research program to last another 30 years. was a lot of philosophy. So I want to end this episode with one last bit of biography that helps explain something that might have occurred to the attentive listener who's made it this far into our series. Why are there so many Australian accents talking about David Lewis, a major American figure in American philosophy of the 20th century? It has a lot to do with Arguably, David Lewis's best professional friend. Could you tell me a little bit about David Armstrong? Well, Armstrong, uh, most people think, is
7: the, the greatest philosopher that Australia has ever produced.
1: Peter Anstey is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Sydney and Literary Executor to the estate of David Armstrong
7: he was an enormously influential figure in the late 20th century. He was a fair bit older than David Lewis.
1: When did he and David Lewis meet? When did the relationship begin?
7: 1968. That's the first letter. It's actually from Steffi Lewis to David Armstrong. It's a postcard. The correspondence started and really continued until Lewis's death.
1: David Lewis and David Armstrong formed a relationship that lewis and quine never could neither rejected philosophical questions for being too metaphysical even though the two saw each other every year their typewritten correspondence was enormous 690 pages pdf files
7: a lot of the ballast to the friendship really was built around enjoying doing philosophy together some people like Sailing together. The two Davids like philosophizing together.
1: David Lewis's views over the years would be developed in letters to David Armstrong. And David Armstrong's views would be developed with David Lewis present. Uh, and then gradually they became uh, closer and, and closer and, and shared
7: much uh, over and above philosophy, which is, you know, the Australian Bush Australian rules, football, all these sorts of things. In some sense, you need to view it as a kind of foursome, that Steffi was very much part of the picture, and so was Jenny Armstrong. And That, that really helped things, that the four of them got on a, a,
1: as couples. This led to David and Steffi Lewis visiting and working out of Australia, and also New Zealand, every year during the Northern Summers it would lead to him publishing many of his papers in his preferred journal, the Australasian Journal of Philosophy, a journal that continues to publish extensively in what you might call Lewisian metaphysics. Some people argue that it even led to that journal, and not the Croatian Journal of Philosophy, which is also in English, being a high-prestige journal today completely due to the fact that David Lewis liked to publish in it because he liked the country and the country, in turn, liked his philosophy. And since then, generation after generation of philosophy students from Australia and New Zealand reliably read David Lewis as undergraduates Something that cannot be said about philosophy in any other country. Next time, on our final episode of The Man of Many Worlds. When
7: David Armstrong heard that Lewis died, he wept on the phone.
1: We look at the last year of David Lewis's life. Hi-Fi Nation is written, produced, and edited by Barry Lamb, Associate Professor and Chair of Philosophy at Vassar College. Executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Alicia Montgomery. Editorial director
0: for Slate Podcasts is Gabriel Roth. Senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is
1: June Thomas. Managing producer for Slate Podcasts is Asha Saluja. Editor of Slate Plus is me, Chow Tu. Production assistance this season provided by Jake Johnson. Visit hifination.org for complete transcript, show notes, and reading list for every episode. That's h-i-p-h-i-nation.org. Follow HiFi Nation on Facebook and Twitter, and at the website for updates on stories and ideas.